welcome. I'm glad to have you. Uh, if you would like, it, like to open up your Bible or pull out your phone or your iPad or whatever you got, uh, we're going to be right here in Nehemiah chapter 2. Um, and uh, we've been, we started a series last week. Um, it's a six-week series on Nehemiah. And uh, of, of all the people in the Old Testament, I feel like Nehemiah is one of the most relatable individuals that, that we can come across because he's an ordinary um, ordinary human being and who meets with God in a very uh, desperate moment and extraordinary things happen as a result of that. Um, and uh, last Sunday we entered the Persian Empire with Nehemiah and met this man. He was a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. And uh, Nehemiah was a man who was born and raised in captivity because about 130 years prior to Nehemiah's time, his own ancestors were exiled from their homeland by the Babylonian Empire. And so when we meet Nehemiah in chapter 1, verse 1, it is 445 BCE, about 130 years later. And uh, by that time, many Israelites had already started to head back home to their homeland and set up shop, set up camp, uh, by decree of Cyrus the Great, the first Persian king. The, the power vacuum had been sucked up by, by the Persians. They took over the Babylonians uh, in a period of time. And Cyrus the Great, mentioned not only here or mentioned in Isaiah, uh, he issued that decree so that the Israelites could go back home. That was a little bit more of a personal engagement for Cyrus. It allowed him to have some people under his, his guise setting up camp outside of, on the edge of his kingdom. And it benefited him, but it also benefited the Israelites pe Israelite people. So when we ne meet Nehemiah himself by his own words and his own testimony in chapter 1, verse 1, he is still in captivity and he's serving as a cupbearer. And he hears from his own brother who has seen the homeland, who has come back. He's heard from his own brother of the great trouble and the great disgrace that the people, the Israelite people, are in. Why? I'm so glad you guys asked. The walls of Jerusalem, the great city, the economic center, the, the national center, their identity, their spiritual identity, the walls of that great city have been down, and they have been down for 130 years which leaves them prone and vulnerable. And as you're hearing my words today, I will reiterate what I said last week. With what is going on on the political stage here in America, this is not political rhetoric. This is not political rhetoric. Whether you're for the wall or not, God is on both sides of the wall and God is apolitical. And we must not use Scripture nor mock God to defend our side. God is pro-human, pro-humanity, because God sent His Son that He might die for all humanity, that we might be redeemed from our sins and receive eternal salvation. So, take the pen out of that. Okay? I want to address the elephant in the room. 
And so today, this morning, we pick up where we left off last week, the very beginning of chapter 2. And uh, folks, I've already missed where I was, so forgive me. (laughs) Um, Folks, John Piper says that the Christian life is a call to risk. You either live with risk or you waste your life. Nehemiah and you are on the verge of the crossroads of taking the risk of faith or wasting the opportunity. Let's pray. Lord God, I first want to submit myself because you know I've been scattered. You know that this sermon's been in pieces, but I know that you have a word for all of us sitting here and all of those listening via online or podcast. Lord, may your presence be sensed and may your word and you speak with the authority that you have. I ask that you remove me from the equation. And for the next 20 to 30 minutes, you have our attention. We want you. We desire you. We want to know you and what it is that you have for us to engage with. It's in your name, Jesus, we ask today. Amen. So, please, open up to chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 9. So if you'd like to follow along, I'd appreciate that. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan... In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I, Nehemiah, had not been sad in in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? There's the problem. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, you always need a wife's approval, right? (laughs) Ask me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, 
so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Sounds like he's pressing his luck, doesn't it? But listen here. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So, I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king had also sent army officers and the cavalry with me. Folks, the Christian life is called a risk. You either live in and with the risk or you waste your life. Chapter 2, we meet Nehemiah in a very ordinary moment. Do we not? This is his job. This is what he does for a living. Because if he doesn't do it very well, he's not going to live very much longer. Because he serves at the power of the king. At the pleasure of the king. And if the king doesn't like you and is not pleased with you, off with your head. Right? And as a cupbearer, he always is at risk of losing his life because he must taste the wine before the king, right? That's the purpose of a cupbearer. It's not just to bring a cup of wine. It's to take the wine before the king has the taste so that the king does not die because of what's in the cup, right? Everybody's out for the king. So let the cupbearer be the pawn. So, on an ordinary day, a work day, Nehemiah brings the cup before the king. I want to remind us very briefly at the very first verse of this chapter. It is in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, in the month of Nisan. Last week I mentioned the distance between verse 1, chapter 1, and the distance between verse 1, chapter 2 is about three to five months of time. Kislev, verse 1, chapter 1, is our month of November, December in the Jewish calendar. Nisan is the month of March and April. It's our Passover time. That's March or April on our calendar. It's a distance and a span of about three to five months. Nehemiah has been sitting with this burden, knowing full well that his people are vulnerable, his brothers and sisters could be at the mercy of everyone around them. Three to five months he's been carrying this burden. It's very evident because Nehemiah wears his heart on his sleeve. I'm pretty sure many of us walk through these doors and tuck our heart under our sleeve. God doesn't want you to do that. God doesn't want you to do that at all. He wants you to come heart and all. And so in this very ordinary moment, but in a very desperate time, he engages in his job like you do every day. 
It is a desperate time. And folks, I need to be very poignant here. Oftentimes, in desperate times, God's call is revealed. It is typically in those crisis moments that God's call is revealed. But I want to point out here, nowhere in chapter 1 and nowhere in chapter 2, 3, and on down the line, do we see God telling Nehemiah, hey, you, get up, go build a wall. There is not one moment that God says, hey, Nehemiah, I want you to do this. There is not one moment in this Scripture that God says, Nehemiah, I've got your back. You already have victory, Nehemiah. All you need to do is do it. Not anywhere in this text do we see that God says, Nehemiah, you have my favor. No. Not in one place. Nehemiah sensed the burden over a period of time. Folks, we need to understand that when we allow God time to work, we also need to allow God in the desperate times to work in us. Hear me on this. We need to allow God in the desperate times to work in us. It is a very natural and human response for you and I to put harm and difficulty in situations at arm's length and kick it out the door. We seek the quickest way out of situations. We seek the quickest way out of uncomfortable situations. You, you watch it on a, any given Sunday in a church. The greeting time is the most uncomfortable situation ever. I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but it is. And you watch it in those conversations when we start to actually peel back the band-aids and really ask you how you are. You'll see the doors fly wide open. <laughs> we want the quickest way out of uncomfortable situations. Path of least resistance, right? You want it, I want it. God wants us to take the risk. Oftentimes, God's call in your life, His will for you, whether it's short-term or long-term, it is revealed in the crisis moments. It's revealed in the desperate times. i got to ask you today, are you listening? Nehemiah embraced it. He embraced the difficult time. He embraced the desperate time. He sat in it. He wrapped himself in it. Three to five months. 
we look at them going, what are you doing, man? You're like a construction worker hanging on the, shel- on the shovel. There's work to be done, dude. Do it. That's the American way. Get it done. Embrace the desperate time. Allow it to do its work in you. And so, on an ordinary day, it's a work day. He comes before the king, and the king notices the heart on the sleeve. He notices the burden that Nehemiah is carrying. Why are you so sad? It's only a sadness of heart. And here it is. Opportunity knocks. And as he's very much afraid, because again, he serves at the pleasure of the king or dies at the pleasure of the king. Why shouldn't I be sad? The desperate time, the desperate situation, it's real, it's raw, it's here. My people, they're vulnerable. It hurts. Why shouldn't I be sad? Notice what verse 4 says. The king said to me, what is it you want? Whoa, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. The king, Artaxerxes, powerful guy, resourceful guy, has all access to a lot of things, asks me, the one who's a pawn to keep him alive, says, what do you want? Need I remind us, go back to the very end of chapter 1. It's right there on the other page. Take a look at it. Nehemiah prays this prayer. And it seems like this prayer that he prays, he's prayed it several times, but at the very end of his prayer, before he even reveals who he is, he says this. He's asking God, give your servant success by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Give your servant favor in the presence of this man. This has been a prayer that Nehemiah has prayed over the last three to five months. How many of you sitting here today have prayed a prayer one time and said, Oh God, you haven't even answered it. Where are you? What are you doing? I'm waiting for you. You haven't answered it. I'm giving up on it. Three to five months. Nehemiah has been asking the Lord, Give your servant favor in the presence of this man. When you ask God for his favor, you better expect his favor. 
Listen to me. If you're asking God for Him to move, you better expect for Him to move. You better watch for Him to move. And if you're asking God for favor, you better expect it. You anticipate it. You watch for it. You wait for it. And you continue to ask for it. Don't just throw up your hands. Opportunity struck. This is the moment Nehemiah has been waiting for. This is the moment that Nehemiah has been asking for. And you know what? It shows up in the most ordinary of ways. If you're looking for a neon sign, if you're looking for a flash of lightning, folks, you're going to die looking for it. God comes in the most ordinary ways. Or, excuse me, He comes in the most ordinary moments in the most extraordinary ways. And so, in the most ordinary moments and in the most extraordinary way, the low man on the totem pole is talking to the, the top dog. What is it that you want? <laughs> Watch this. Go back to your scripture. Take a look real quick. Very end of chapter, or verse 4, chapter 2. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Wait. Check it out. So Nehemiah has been praying for this moment. The moment shows up. And he's face to face with this king. Eye to eye. Why are you so sad? Well, here you go, king. What is it you want? And then Nehemiah has the audacity to write it down, what he just did. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, folks, if you're listening to this moment, play it out for a second. Did he ask the king to remove his crown and ask the king to bow his head? We need to have a moment of prayer here, king. Hey, king, wait a second. You just asked me what, I, what do I want. Let me go back and let me pray about it. Let me take some time. Then I can answer you. No, the opportunity struck, right? When you have prepped for something in prayer, and that opportunity knocks and strikes, say a quick prayer and get on with it. God has got something for you to do. We are all called and commissioned in the redemption work of God. When you are saved, when you are redeemed, when God has redeemed your soul, guess what? It's get down to business time. 
You've got something to do. So do it. And here Nehemiah doesn't take a long prayer, doesn't, like I did about 20 minutes ago, it was probably like a seven-minute prayer. I'm really sorry I made you stand that long. But you know what? This is a pocket prayer. It's what I call a pocket prayer. It's right in your pocket. You pull it out and you say, you pray it. He doesn't tell us what he prayed, but I feel like this is his, oh God, help me now, kind of moment. We all have those moments, don't we? You'll probably have one on the way home with the rose, right? Oh God, help me. And what does he do? He said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor, favor with the king. Go back to the very last sentence of his prayer. Give your servant success and favor in the presence of this man. If I found favor, and then what's Nehemiah do? You think he's pressing his luck, but you know what? The time that he embraced the desperate time, those three to five months, you know what he was doing? He was planning. He was processing. He was thinking. He was going, Okay, here's the problem. Here's the situation. i got to strategize and figure out what to do. Because when my opportunity strikes, I'm striking back. If I'm asking for God's favor and I'm expecting God's favor, you darn well better plan for God's favor. You plan for it. What's it going to do? And then he rattles off a list. These are the things that I need. These are the things that we'll need. You know what? I'm going to need safe journey. I'm going to need security. But you know what? As I make that safe journey, there's a whole huge forest of timber waiting to be harvested because we're going to need timber to build those walls and to build those gates and put all that stuff together. He knew what he needed. He knew what he wanted and what it was for. When you ask for God's favor, you better expect God's favor and you better plan for it. This is not only a spiritual lesson, this is a lesson in leadership. This is a lesson in life. You better plan for it. Because God, if you're asking Him, and it's with His will, you, He's going to give it to you. Because this is a cause for God. We're all commissioned for the cause of God and His plan of redemption in people's lives. We got to take that risk. And so, Nehemiah asks for his favor. He expects his favor. And he planned for it. And when the opportunity revealed itself five months down the line, 
He was bold and courageous and took the risk to ask for it. I, uh, <clears throat> Larry Osborne said that not everything from heaven has your name on it. We're called to take up the cause of God. We're all looking for it, right? Here in Nehemiah, God didn't tell him specifically to go build the wall. We don't know that. We don't have any record of that. But he took up the cause of God for redemption of his people. But not everything has your name on it. But something does. Something from heaven has your name on it. Yours. You, specifically. You are responsible to find out what that is and to take that risk. So this morning, as you sit here, as you're listening to my voice, as you've been engaging with the Scripture and with the sermon, you know what it is. You know what God has been speaking to you. You know the risk that God wants you to take in His cause for redemption. Are you going to take that risk with the potential of the floor falling out from under your feet? Are you going to trust that what you're asking God, He's going to do it? Are you going to waste the opportunity? I don't know what that risk is. Quite frankly, it could be something as simple as coming to church on a Sunday. You know what? And if you've taken that risk, I applaud you. I praise you. I thank you for taking that risk. Because, man, we are an awkward people, right? No, I'm just kidding. Just the pastor's awkward. <laughs> At least I admit it, right? But it could be something as simple as that. It could be a step further in, in service. Or in tithing. You know what? I'm going to step out and I'm going to give my whole tithe. But you know what? God wants more than that. God wants more than you come into a Sunday morning service, worship gathering. He wants more than you, more than you just shaking hands with folks and nodding politely at the pastor when he makes a good point. He appreciates that very much so. He wants more than you greeting folks at the door or shoveling the sidewalk. He wants more than giving your whole tithe on a Sunday morning. He wants you to engage in His work of redemption in the community where you live, in the workplace where you work, where you go to school. He wants you to engage in the plan of redemption in your family, with your neighborhood and your friends. 
Because God doesn't want a, a church packed out necessarily. Oh, that's great. That's good. But what God really wants are hearts and lives redeemed and transformed. Having an engaging relationship with Him on a daily basis and someone's forever changed for eternity. And He wants you to engage and take up that cause in your life. So I don't know what risk that God is asking you to take. Live on the edge a little bit, folks. Start living on the edge. Because that's where the kingdom of God comes as it is in heaven right here. Will you please stand? Thank you, Jesus. We'll wrap up here in a few minutes, but I just want you to engage with God in this moment. So would you please just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Open them if you're about to fall over, but just keep your eyes closed for just a moment and focus on what you have just heard and what you've been challenged with. Because it's bigger than you. Much bigger than you. And it's much bigger than a Sunday morning at Wapaknaz or at Worship Community or at Harvest Baptist or at St. Joe's. It's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than Wapakoneta. It's much bigger than Oglays County and Northwestern Ohio and Ohio and the Midwest and, and North America, the Western Hemisphere. It's much bigger. It's global. And it's eternal. That's how big it is. It's so big, and it means so much to God to have you engage in that, that He came to earth and He died so that you can be a part of that. God, I ask you right now, for everyone standing here, for our kids that are upstairs who haven't even heard a word I'm saying, for those that are listening online or our podcast, Lord, you've spoken today through your word. And Lord God, you have set out our cause for God. You've, you've commissioned us already. I ask that those here that know the risk that they need to take, I ask that they move and they take the risk, whatever that may be, however uncomfortable, they don't know if they're going to fall flat on their face, but it's the cause of God. Help them find whatever it is that is sent from heaven for them to take on. 
Lord, may we be bold and may we be courageous to step out, to engage with one another, to speak about you and the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And if it's anybody here that needs to take the risk to receive you, to ask you into their life, for you to be Lord and Savior in their heart and in their home and in their workplace, their whole world, may they do it today. If that's you, kind of stepping out of prayer here, if that's you, I'd ask that you just repeat after me a very simple prayer. It goes a little something like this. God, I need you. God, I want you in my life. I want you in my heart. And I ask that you forgive me for my sins. Because I am a sinner, but I want to be a sinner saved by grace. Will you come in and redeem me and rejuvenate me and and make me new? Transform me from the inside out. Make me holy. Will you just come in? And may I begin now living my life with you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. If you said that or something similar to that, I want you to talk to me today. I want to know. I want to know. Folks, I love you. God loves you. He really does. We love you here at Wapak Nash. May you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And will you please love your neighbor as yourself. Tonight, we are going to cancel encounter just due to the fact that it gets dark out and it's snowy and icy and we don't need folks getting injured. So we love you. We'll see you Wednesday. Have a good day.